you have entered into the morning black. I'm your host, Greg Jones. We are at WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. You have entered into the morning black. I'm your host, Greg Jones. We are at WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Morning Black, building leaders in cultural knowledge. I'm your host, Greg Jones, and I've got Paul Schreiner in the house this morning. We're going to have some conversations about race. Good morning, Paul. How you doing? I'm good, Greg. Good. This is WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. We're also streaming live, live at WVLP.org. Well, this morning we're going to have an uh, interesting conversation about race and where does it come from and how do we get attached to it and you know some of the things that happens as we begin to be socialized as uh, racial thinking folk you know how do how does that become a perspective in our thinking of one another and so I asked Paul when we were having a conversation yesterday I asked Paul to you know share some of his stories with us and um, I'm going to begin by just uh, asking Paul Paul, how did you get involved with Project Neighbors? Project Neighbors, and 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 why is this a uh, uh, important thing for you now? Where did it come from? Well, the the facts of the story are that in 1991, my wife, uh, after about 20 years of staying away from the church, started to attend church again. She's Lutheran deaconess, and for some reason, we had fallen away. Uh, uh, me particularly, and 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 she was uh, attempting to uh, reintegrate me into that. And she mentioned this old guy that she had known back when she was a student at VU was renovating a house. And I had been in the construction business for twenty five years, so I kind of knew what I was doing. And anyway, I got I got connected to Walt Reiner, and uh, that led to another twenty five years of volunteering and helping and getting acquainted with uh, the community that Walt was connected to. Um, and then when the opportunity came to, uh, to retire from the construction business, which I was very, very happy to do because capitalism was not exactly what I wanted to be uh, uh, intimately connected with and become uh, more involved in the not-for-profit world, I... I was offered a job to be the director of the organization uh, after the years of being connected with, to the board of directors and volunteering. And you was familiar with what uh, what was trying to do in terms of dealing with people of color and bringing them to Valparaiso and things of that nature? Absolutely. I mean, the, the first thing I got connected to was uh, the Rosalind Blake and her family. And I got to know Roz and uh, Mark and the children just by fixing the plumbing before then had you had uh significant interactions with people of color when i left valparaiso university i joined vista volunteers and service to the america to america and and was sent to the east coast and worked in an integra integrated very 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 poor community so i had interactions plus i grew up in in south bend uh, a, a city that was uh I don't know the ratio, but certainly in, I went to the inner city school, which was a good portion of which was black. Okay. Uh, so, I, yeah, there was a connection. We have a familiar background. I was a VISTA volunteer as well. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, Greg. yeah. 
Yeah. Amazing. Got, got my certificate signed by Mondale. Yeah. 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 So I was in Nashua, New Hampshire. I was in Pilsen. Pilsen. Yeah. In, in Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. 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 Okay, so um, when let, let's talk a little about your your childhood. You said you grew up in South Bend, and and it's um, we want to say it's racially diverse. Do you, would you say it was was racially diverse? Absolutely. Was it segregated, or when you grew up, or residentially you know? it was segregated? I grew up uh, on the near northwest side, which was an all white, not, not exclusively all white, but a blue collar neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to Measle Elementary slash Junior High School, which was, uh, you know, it was my my elementary school, so I don't know how to compare it to anything. And there were uh, not an insignificant number of black kids in the school. Um, were there were there uh, instructors? Were there all, supervisors? All white. All, all white. All white. Okay, so when you interacted with uh, black folk, they were basically students and or students' parents, that kind of stuff. Yeah, they were students. Yeah. Yes. Okay. At that at that point, I don't think I interacted much with with black adults, but there were kids in my school, certainly in my high school. Some people will recognize the name Michael Warren, um, who was a basketball player, went on to play with Kareem at UCLA, and then became an actor and played Bobby Hill on uh, Hill Street Blues. Oh, yeah. He was senior class president two years ahead of me. Mm. So lots of black kids in the high school. Okay. One of the things that we want to try to get to, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of um, looking at this, this subject off an article in Forbes uh, that was written by a Miss Donna Brownlee. She wrote an article June 16, 2020. Uh, she said, Dear white people, here are five uncomfortable black colleague, truths black colleagues need you to know. And then she goes on, I'm not going to read the introduction, but she begins to talk about why there are things that um, white folks need to know about how to deal with this problem of racism in society. And so since we've been talking about it a lot and there's been so much going on, you know, in, in the, the country in, regard, in regards to racism and race talk and, you know, how do we, you know, truth tell and all that kind of thing that we need to do. I thought it would be good to take a look at, you know, where do some of the roots of our understanding of people of color come from? And that's kind of the germination of this particular um, segment today. So uh, we just want to look at the first truth, and then I want you to go back and tell me that story again that you told me. Racism doesn't just show up. This is the first truth that she writes in this article. Racism doesn't just show up in its most extreme form. There is indeed a continuum of racist thoughts and behaviors, and you may be on it. And this is the truth that you're supposed to be giving to your white friends and things of that nature. Sure. So uh, with that in mind, uh, let's try to go back. Let's get in Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine, and let's see if we can go back to some of the first, your first thoughts about difference when you dealt with the issue of race. 
Well, let me give a little context. Okay, okay sure. South Bend was a very progressive union city in the early 1950s. Um, my mother was uh, the daughter of a printer who printed the, uh, the progressive newsletters and newspapers for that community. So she came to uh, motherhood with kind of a uh, uh, FDR perspective, I think. So we did not have a, a vibrant racist rhetoric in our household. Okay. Now, of course, I don't remember any kind of uh, uh, talk in our house. So when so your much. mom talked about race, though, did she talk about race? I remember she told me the story when I was adult that we were driving along Western Avenue, which is a uh, integrated, uh, more of a black community on the south side of town, and I was very, very little, and there were black people, and I asked her, Mom, what's what's wrong with those people's faces? Okay. And I don't remember her answer, but she undoubtedly gave me some kind of civil explanation for uh, dark skin. Okay. And you, you, did you grow up, I mean, were you aware of what was going on in the civil rights movement at the time? I mean, I mean, as a small person? Um, uh, the, 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 yeah, I think I was, but that was a few years. I mean, I was... The story that that sparked our conversation yesterday happened when I was nine years old. Okay, so I th I think I was unaware at that point. Okay, yeah, all right, all right. So at nine years old, I was in the fourth grade, and um, I attended this this measles elementary school on the northwest side of town. And my best friend was a young African American by the name of Leonard Skinner. Okay, now let me stop you right there. Sure. How did you know he was an African-American? Oh, he was black. Okay. I wouldn't have used the term African-American. Negro. He was, yeah, we would have used the term Negro. Okay. Yes. Okay, and that was a familiar term that you had heard. Again, I'm going to tell you the, my memory's dreadful. I remember the incident, but the, all the context around it, I mean, I think I probably knew the term Negro. I would think colored, that, yeah. Co oh, colored, yeah. Colored, we would have used that term. So he was colored. There were colored folks and there were white folks, okay. and that's about all I, I would be would have been aware of at that point. Okay, and were you? But you were aware of the derogatories. Well, the story says that I was. Okay. So keep, keep. All right. It was winter. Uh, the playground at Measles School was not asphalted. It was dirt. Uh, but it was snow-covered on this particular day. We were out in recess, and for some reason, Leonard and I got into a dispute of some sort, and and, and we were both uh, uh, little, and we were both fat, and we both had snowsuits on, and we began to fight with each other. And my understanding, my memory, is that we were we were yelling at each other and calling each other names and rolling around in the snow, and there wasn't a teacher around to stop us, so it was just continued. And at some point, I called him using the N-word. Okay. And now, again, I, I have told this story. I taught school for a number of years, and I told this story to my students. Uh, and... In the retelling of the story, I may have embellished it over the years, and sometimes embellishment becomes reality. But my memory is that his face got red, and he said to me, my mama told me if anybody ever called me that, I should whoop them 
or beat him up or slug him or something. Mm -hmm. So we proceeded to roll around, not harming each other, uh, for a few more minutes until either we got tired or we decided to forget about it. And we continued to be friends. Okay. We got past it. Okay. Now, here, here's a, like, a social observation kind of question. Why do you think you remember Leonard in that way? And so when people ask you about interactions, why do you think you go to that story? Well, first of all, I wasn't a fighting kind of guy. I don't think I had two, two three fights in my life, mm -hmm. physical encounters. Um, I'm probably exaggerating. There probably were more than that, but I don't know. Uh, the awareness that I grew into of race and the unfairness of uh, uh, the sociology of our of our country, of our society, probably allowed that story to become more prominent in my memory. Okay, I mean, because on one one level, I think about it, and I say, you know, I hear that so often. I hear the stories of white people saying, well, I had a best friend in college, or I had a best friend when I was little, or I had a best friend, and they were, you know, black, you know. And they don't refer, they don't use trigger without, you know, changing it to in. But they do talk about their first encounters I mean, that's like the first thing that comes out when there's a interaction in terms of, you know, how do you feel or understand or perceive race or race? What's going on? It seems like that shows up a lot. And so I, I was wondering, I'm just, I'm just thinking, why does it, why do you think it sticks so prominent in your head? Well, Greg, I think black-white relations in this country are the central theme, if not the central theme, one absolute central theme of our history. I think the notion that we were a country founded on the idea of everybody being equal and the reality of everybody not being equal has been a dominant theme since folks began moving the Indians out. Since tea, the Tea Party? Well, probably since before, before the, the tea, tea Party. Yeah, I mean, since, since 1619. Sure. Sure. So, so it, it, anybody who reflects at all on the reality of <laughs> relationships in this country should, be, should realize that that's, that's the exciting, if not the appealing, part of our history. The fact that we have struggled with this duality. Do you think we're conscious? Of, do you think? Let me ask this because I have to ask this from an outsider point. Do you think white people are conscious of that, or is that something subliminal that that white people are aware of? I think subliminally they are aware of it. I think those who are deliberate and reflect on it become more. But it's there, one way or another. I think so. Yes. Okay. I hear you. I hear you. So, so going on, going back to the context. Uh, when did you begin to invoke a consciousness about the difference? 
I'm not sure I understand your question. When, when did it become clear to you that Leonard was, life, culture was different than yours? And, 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 and it might have, we might move down some years. We gotta know. move down some years. Let's move down some yeah. years, because you mentioned another individual that was uh, in, in, with you in college. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll get to that, but let me not move so many years in high school. We, we, we had gym class, and in gym class, of course he was integrated, and we had white kids and, and black kids. And frankly, uh, this was before the civil rights movement got fired sure, up. Sure, sure. This was in the early 1960s. Okay. Uh, and even though there was action in Nashville and in the South, there wasn't any action in South Bend. Okay. And and uh, again, I was still a heavy kid, um, and I got paired to wrestle with another heavy kid in my gym class, Joe Winston. And neither of us were athletes. Okay. And neither of us were probably capable of. Was Joe black? Yeah, Joe was black. Okay. And, uh, you know, I had to wrestle him. And, you know, the, there's a lot of myths about race, Greg. Sure. And one of them was, you know, they smell different. Sure. And I got a good opportunity because we were both sweating and it's probably stinking. And I tested it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah I, I've wrestled in high school. Yeah. And, and we both stunk. Sure. But we didn't we didn't stink differently. Okay. But that was in my now you're prompting a memory that I haven't thought about for 50 years. Sure. Uh, that was in my head. Now, now that's that's where we at now. See. So, was the different smell instigated by the conversation and the social interaction? Oh, I'm sure. You think? Oh, I'm you know, if it's in your head, you got it from somewhere. Yeah. You weren't born with that belief. Okay. You okay. learned it from somewhere. You learned it from... So those stereotypes that are already being... Oh, absolutely. By, by high school. By high school. I and mean, this was probably freshman year in high school. Yeah. Yeah. They already embedded, so to they, speak. They are. And that's even if you're not from a particularly uh, virulent, racist right. context. So, so what we're talking about here is we're, we're saying, you know... Your household was fairly, you know, removed from all of that, but yet and still, you were not, you know, absolved from being influenced by what was going around socially. That's right. And culturally. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Nor I was I d d intentionally taught to be aware and resistant to it. Right. right. So it was kind of a neutral, neutral position. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And upon that experience, what happened after that experience? I mean, you know, how did you, how did you come out of that experience? Um, I, I don't, I don't know that there was any lingering response. Uh, I, I probably didn't give it a whole lot of thought. So, so did you hang out with the the guy that you wrestled with? I, no, we were. He was from the other side of the tracks. Okay, so who did you hang out with during during high school? Uh, I was on the debate team. Okay, weird kids. Okay, was it any people of color on that on that debate team? My in, memory in, was, in your social interactions. My my memory was that there were not. Okay, but this was an interesting, this was an interesting school because there were, you know. There were working class kids, there were poor kids, and there were upper middle class kids. And racially, all those groups were occupied. Okay. So we had, we had class leaders who were, we had good students, successful students in all three of those classes. 
So it was a, it was a good place to 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 grow more aware of of racial. Was it diverse? It was diverse. Yeah. Oh, okay, but there was no diversity in terms of teachers and supervisors and staff. I, I remember nothing but white teachers. Okay. 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 So so one of the things that is in, interesting about this interesting about this is is how um when we interact with folk with language and culture kinds of things that are going on is that oftentimes they are kind of almost sealed away from culturally one another there's there's not a lot of there's there seems to be um a barrier that allows significant conversations to take place between peers at that particular time. One of the things that we are dealing with in terms of enduring racism is that when you talk to individuals and they say, well, yeah, you know, it was black people around, you know, I interacted sometimes with them, but there, there was no process that employed intentionality I, I think you can underline that statement. Sure. We didn't talk about race. But you talked about the people on, on the other side of the tracks. Uh, probably amongst ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, but, but not, n- not a lot. We were separated. Separate. Right. They, and they weren't on the radar. They were on the radar, and we weren't, watching, uh, we weren't watching the action that happened a few years later down south. That began to be a catalyst for conversation. Okay, so so today when you have conversations now, you you know, we're getting older, you know, all the time. You look if you look to today, is it possible that people could actually come up the way that you came up and never encounter any significant individuals in relationship to um, race? I still think that's very possible. And and do you and do you frequently have conversations with individuals like that? I I think I do. You know, and it's not it's, so it's it's deeper than just saying, you know, I don't like black folks. And I don't like, you know, I don't like people of color. I don't like, you know, whatever. Well, we haven't gone here in the conversation yet. Yeah. But um Attitudes about race, racism, if you want to use that word, right. is a deeply ingrained, ingrained cultural f- phenomenon in our country. But it's deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained. Isn't it deeper than cultural, though? Uh, no, I don't think there is much deeper than culture. Well, I mean, I mean, language. I mean, we, we, if a person behaviorally has never um, seriously considered the other. You know, in terms of of interaction or conversation or um, social intercourse, so to speak. Yeah, it's almost inevitable that that individual will develop some bias. I agree with that. Right. But but all of that is is culture, where folks live, how they think about each other, how they treat each other, the barriers that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the barriers that are set up to preclude significant relationships, all of that's built into the cultural rules. And we have in the, I'll tell you, I, I am, I am for the first time in my life, 
more optimistic than I've been in a long time because of what the last few years has spawned in terms of deliberate efforts to expose the historical unfairness of our culture. Could you raise someone generationally to be almost instinctually biased? Well, human beings don't have instincts. Why would you say that? <laughs> I taught sociology, and I used to I used to spend an hour lecturing on the difference between instinct and uh, and reflex and learned behaviors. And while animals have instincts, which are complex behaviors that are automatic, humans don't have complex behavior. We don't want to argue that. We don't want to argue that. No. We don't want to argue no. that. Because, you know, we, we, would, you know we, would, we would argue that. You know, <laughs> we would argue that. Well, okay, well, let's move on. Let's move on. So um, get, let's get to uh, this, this piece when you're in college. So did anything change socially for you from high school to college in well, relationship to <clears throat> difference? Uh, I think significantly it did. Uh, I went to college at Valparaiso University for four years, and after I got out, I, did, I, was, I wasn't very well equipped to be employed because I had been a liberal arts student. Did um, you encounter people of color in Valparaiso? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. And what was, your, what was your actions in relationship to that, those encounters? I mean, did you, was there intentionality to it, or is it just, just that, well, we know there's some black people here I was acquainted with black people and got, got along well with them. There wasn't intentionality and there wasn't mission in my life at that point. I was a, I was a young man growing up. Uh, I think I, 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 the, the, the main dwelling point for guys my age was the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and the reality that most of the folks that we were sending over there to be fodder for the cannons. Was there anything in the social environment or the cultural environment at the university that enticed or incentivized yeah. relationship. This is, this is another interesting story. You're prompting these things for the first time in my, in my memory. Uh, I, I took a lot of sociology classes, and um, my future wife's roommate was an African-American girl, and neither of us had much money, and we had to buy this extremely expensive textbook, so we agreed to share it. She took the class in a different section than I did. So we would see each other quite often. And at the time, I wasn't uh, dating my future wife, and I was kind of interested in her. Hmm. Um, Say more about that. Well, we'd see each other, and she'd write little notes at the side on the margins about how funny this author was, and I'd write little notes back. So we had some significant interactions. We were friends. Okay. But in the back of my my brain, I could imagine more than being friends, although Absolutely. it never went anywhere. Mm -hmm. Probably for the obvious reasons. Okay. How did that make you feel? I don't know that it made me feel anything. I was, I mean, I was happy to have a friend. It was kind of cool to share this textbook with somebody else, to have. And there was there was no social pressure to have or not to have. The no, I don't think there was. I mean, during your time, during 1968. Yeah, I don't know if that was, it was probably 68, 68 or 69. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. So, but you asked me about this second. You asked me about significant changes. 
I, I spent a year out of college. I went to Vista after after VU, and then I spent a year working, and then I went to Indiana University to get a master's degree. And I uh, was going to get a, 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 a this master's degree was going to allow me to have a teaching license. So I took a lot of social science classes, and I was absolutely gifted with the opportunity to take a couple of history classes that focused on African-American history. And the two fellows that taught it were, uh, they were dynamite. One of them was an African-American. You remember the names? I do not, I'm okay. sorry. Mm -hmm. But the first, the first guy that ta taught from 1619 up to whenever, he probably was- Probably 1865. Probably, he just, he laid it out. I mean, he gave us uh, a good perspective on the history of black folks from an African-American. So he was sympathetic and he was dramatic, dramatic. I remember him referring to, at the time, Richard Nixon. So this had to be in like maybe 1972, 73 maybe. He referred to him as Richard W. Nixon. And we all sat there thinking, what the heck, who's Richard? Why the W? Of course, it was Watergate. But he was colorful. Mm -hmm. And he, re, I mean, it was just a, when you sat and listened to his lectures, it wasn't ho-hum. But it was also insightful. I mean, he talked about the Middle Passage with passion. And so it, you're saying that affected you, you know. Anybody uh, who. So did you, did, based on, okay. Did, hmm. It developed empathy for the but, reality. But you still didn't have, you know, significant kinds of interactions with that's correct. People of color, right? That's correct. I mean, you it's kind of you still like downtown looking at through the window, right? Well, can I keep going? You sort of. We want to we want to keep it okay moving toward you know that 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 encounter that you talked to me about. Okay. Well, I'm, I, I that that happens now. Okay. Um. This this is all scary stuff for me to r replay in my brain. No. Uh, okay. Stop. 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 Sure. Stop. Why? Well, because I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why. Uh, part the, the guy. And what kind of scary? Um, I taught a student taught in Indianapolis in a uh, West Side school on Washington Boulevard, uh, largely African American school. A student taught American history. The guy I replaced was a coach, a young white guy who who did not do significant instruction in his classroom. Um, and I was put in there to, to do significant instruction by my instructors. And, and I got to know the class a little bit, and I don't think I was a particularly effective teacher at that point. But at one point, I noticed an empty seat in the back of the room, and I can't remember his name. I think his name was Joe also. And I said to the class, where's Joe? And somebody said, oh, he killed his ma. Hmm. Now, was Joe an African-American? Yeah, yeah. The okay. class was primarily okay, African-American. So, okay, so... That was riveting. Is that why it's scary? It's scary because... Um, oh, you hadn't met anybody that had killed their mother before? I don't think I had, no. Okay, so... And I it, saw it, that be, as it's being... Not, it's not... It wasn't scary in terms of race. It was scary in terms of that's something that you hadn't encountered It was before. scary in terms of both. Why? Because I saw in, in, in the black community that was poor, uh, 
a, a, fa- a family pathology that okay, well, at now, least I projected uh, it in my brain. Yeah, yeah. You maybe there wasn't maybe there wasn't that. Maybe that generalization wasn't fair. Well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was general. Maybe it, the the pathology of it was is that it was general. You know that you know, um, yeah, which can lead to stereotype. What it taught me was that there was some. Stri- and so, so before you move okay. forward, so we want to talk about how people will take pathologies that happen in society and narrow them to you know particular communities. Greg, here's what I drew from that experience. Right. There was some pain that resulted in this, whatever this was, this crime, mm-hmm. and that that pain um, was um, the result of uh, a rather horrible history, not the result of a pathological group of people, not the result of inherent but you can see how the two could get confused right I well the racist would have said would have said yeah see yeah that's how those people live I mean and I didn't draw that conclusion and even even those who take a neutral position could certainly want to drive around the avoid the neighborhood right yeah right okay yeah and and those stop starts that we are taken today are, I think, important because of the nature of the intricacy and the nuances of racism that takes on a life of its own in some weirdly um, interesting ways in terms of how people form their opinion about, because I see this in my class um, that I teach. Uh, oftentimes when I talk to even you know, this generation of young white students, they have already collected a bag of opinions that have allowed them to project a particular perception upon a particular community or communities. And my question is, is where did they get that bag of stuff from? How did they form those particular perceptions so early and so clearly about race, you know, and so that's what we're kind of digging at today. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, you were interested in this this other illustration, and it, to me, it uh, illustrates the uh, depth to which our culture has embraced um, ethnic and social and religious stereotypes. Uh, while I was teaching in Indianapolis, I shared an apartment. My, I was married at the time. My wife and I shared an apartment with another couple, also students, also. Uh, the, the, both of the guys were student teaching, and the other guy was Barry Gomberg. And Barry was just a guy that I had bumped into, very bright, uh, friendly guy. Just a, he, We were buds. And somewhere along the way, I needed to buy a car. And uh, I said to Barry, uh, we had gone shopping, I guess, and didn't come back with anything. Uh, I said to Barry, Barry, I'm going to go out again tomorrow. Will you, will you come with me? You're so, you're so much better at jewing people down. And I didn't give one thought to the fact that I had used um, uh, an ethnic slur 
nor did I give one to the fa- one thought to the fact that Barry Gomberg was Jewish. Although when he fell off the couch, uh, I, I knew that I had uh, committed a... Were you aware that he was Jewish prior to the ethnic slur? I, I think I was aware that he was Jewish, but I didn't think much about Jewish, period. Period. So I didn't, no. No, I, wouldn't ne- I would never have said to a Jewish person with any forethought, you're better at Jewing people down. It just was part of my vocabulary. Okay, so, but see, see, here we go again. Here we go again. Okay, so how did it become a part of your vocabulary? Well, it's it's a part of the uh, linguistic tradition of the majority in this country, and I undoubtedly heard it or read it. Or it just become which also means that it's it was also a part of the cultural and social oh absolutely makeup yes so like, in like, your encounters there were conversations either participated in or witnessed to or heard over that gave you that perception to use that language when it came to Goldberg twenty five years in the construction business I I'm at the lumber yard five times a week, and I have to buy products, okay? There's a particular product that everybody used 40 years ago. Sure. It's a, a, a sheathing, and it is black in color. You mm-hmm. can imagine what it was referred to. Mm-hmm. Endboard. Okay. Okay. I never used that term. I found that by t- that time in life. I found it very offensive, but everybody else used that. Let me have 100 sheets of endboard. They didn't say in, though. So where do you pick up that stuff? Everywhere you, go, everywhere you are, you pick that stuff up. See, that, and that draws me back. We're not going to have this conversation. But that draws me back to, you know, if, in fact, it is so, if the language and the culture is so permeated. Saturated. And saturated with that kind of thought. And a kid grows up in that, and then in turn, he or she raises their kid in that. And by the second or third or maybe fourth generation, it just becomes what you do. It, it, it's, it's, it's lying in wait for the wrestling match with but Leonard Skinner. But we wouldn't call that instinctual, though. Lying in wait wouldn't be instinctual. Let's, we, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It's let's learned, Greg. No. It's learned. <laughs> it's not let's instinctual. Move let's move. Let's move on. Okay. Okay. So, uh, all right. So, um, and, and and so now let's. Hmm. So from 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 Goldberg to now, what are some of the insights that you think have impacted how you perceive? Race and do, and are you still affected by um, the kinds of patterns, social patterns, and cultural patterns, and language patterns that people use on a day-to-day basis? I mean, much less so when it comes to um, race. Much less so because there has been. When some, did that change happen for you? Well, the the, the Gomberg incident, where 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 Barry and I had a long conversation afterwards and remained friends. Okay. Uh, and it, it it said, "You Paul, you have a linguistic tradition that is dangerous. You you need to be aware of that." Now, when it comes to 
religion and when it comes to race, that awareness was growing. Mm-hmm. When it came to uh, uh, male and female, that <laughs> those those traditions that were somewhat um, laden with stereotypes, it took a few more years for me to come become aware of those. So, so the feminist movement had to sexism, racism. We have a whole tradition of words in our sure. vocabulary. They're sure. called ethnofallisms, and they are terms that are derogatory of a particular group of people. Sure. Hey, babe. Yeah. You know. Uh, but but okay. So to use another big term, is that part of the reason why we are so in this society xenophobic? Z- I I suspect it is xenophobia. May be the only human instinct. The fact that we look at people who are different than us and we automatically are squinting our eyes. You didn't stay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I weakened there for you a moment. You weakened there for a moment? Okay. We, we did, I did. <laughs> okay, all right. That's, well, that's good. That's good. Okay. You're listening to WVLP 103.1 on your FM dial. This is Morning Black. Okay, so here we are, 2021. 2021. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Where does the years go, right? I, yeah. How, what what has been the the watershed moment for you from your perspective in terms of this whole cultural bias, race, ethno kind of thing? What 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 made you say, man, this is this is deeper than I ever thought that it would be. You know, even though with all my experiences I've had, I've had you know moments with go, had moments with Leonard, had moments with other folks, but this particular thing, and I'm not talking about necessarily a social event. So I don't, I, I'm not looking for the the regular, the usual suspects. I'm not looking for the the death of Martin Luther King or, you know, all that <clears> kind of stuff <throat> or the civil rights movement. For you personally, what was what is the watershed moment that said that? This thing is not going to just disappear, go away for me, or for us. Well, I think that there were there were two parallel, comparable watershed moments. One was the intellectual development that occurred um, primarily after I spent a lot of time with Walt, Walt Reiner. Wow! I, I, because he hammered you uh, with ideas. Nonstop, and and it wasn't that anything that he said was significantly new. It was that he would intellectually point his finger and say, "This is your responsibility." Yeah, yeah, and that and I and I believe I bought it. You bought it. I bought it. This is my responsibility, and perhaps part of that is being old enough and confident enough to know that you can do more than just support your family, and you can do more than just earn a living. That you have to, in fact, embrace some of the things that you have known for a long time that are wrong, that are unfair. How did you... Hmm. Okay, so people telling you stuff is wrong and that you need to do something about it is one thing. Well, I knew that they were wrong. Well, you knew they were wrong. I knew... He was just oh, reinforced. From, from early on. You knew. It, I knew, in it, spite of the fact that, I, that, that, that Leonard heard me call him the N-word, I knew it was unfair. Was for, that instinctual? <laughs> well, well it, 
it was it was reflexive. Okay, well, let's. I'll 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 buy that. I'll, let okay. me weaken a little. It was reflexive. It was reflexive. Okay, but we sometimes we we reflexively do things that we know are wrong. Right. And I I would have had I been a reflective person at age nine, I would have known that was wrong. Right. It's on. It's wrong to hurt people, their feelings or otherwise. So so. Oh, I gotta ask this <laughs> I, question. I must have stepped in it. Oh yeah. Gotta <laughs> ask this one. So our desire, so our understanding of of our humanity, our common humanity. That was there early. It was there. I it's think, there. I think You so. think that's part of who we are? I was only answering for myself. Let me just ask this. Just, we don't have, we'll have another time to deal with this. Okay. Could, could it be that there is a space within us that allows us to recognize the commonness of humanity? Yes. And we unlearn it. And we unlearn it? Yes. And is, <laughs> now you know I would, what I'm going to say. We're not going to go there though. Could that space be how we're made up? Well, <laughs> mm -hmm. Greg, I yeah, I think you've hit a nail on the head. Uh, if you look at the behavior of small children, sure, they do not display the kinds of stories that I'm telling you. That's that's all. That's, that's all I'm asking. That's yeah. all I'm asking. And is it an instinct? We're, that's another conversation. Isn't well, it? well, I mean, you know, because now we're playing with words. Now we're you, yeah, we're, we're dealing right. with words and stuff. But uh, then somehow between the time people come into existence and grow into whatever they are, they unlearn common humanity. They learn culture, and culture is all man-made. Okay. Well. And that culture can, uh, well, it, it takes the raw material and it forms it into what's known as personality. So uh, obviously there can be uh, social constructs that, that Don't destroy that manipulate and instruct people on particular culture. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so you teach you. Hmm. That's interesting because we talk about that in in, in uh, at the university a lot, and we want to you know the university talks about branding and you know the particular culture that they want to produce as a student. So it's not it's almost like they're talking about a commodity, a product. We want to make sure it can do certain things when. It gets out, the it being the student population. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that one of the things that I'm concerned about is part of that product, product that is produced in our learning institutions does not carry with it this notion of common humanity. That would be unfortunate for a university like this one to have that outcome. Well, I mean, but it, it wouldn't be something that would be, in this society at least. In this society, I don't think it wouldn't, it would, be, it would wouldn't be, be uncommon. It wouldn't be significantly missed either right. in the world of, of uh, survival and capitalism. Right. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, you, it's not that people um, are taught to value everybody the same. We're not taught to value everybody the same. We're simply taught to value ourselves more than anybody else well except for the the realm of uh of religion 
which which seems to have a theme, at least some churches have a theme that emphasizes um, in in some ways our common humanity. Yeah, but I'm we don't, not, I don't, I don't want to go there. Yeah, we don't want to go there. But I mean, you know, I, I, I would agree with you, but it, it's, it's more uh, the exception than the rule. Yeah, it's an hour on Sunday. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and we don't we don't go there much. I mean, you know, right. I mean, as organized religion, we don't do that. Do you think, how do you think you passed on the legacy of what you understand today about race to your children? We were much more deliberate in our household to um, undo some of the lessons that you might learn out in the field, the kids might have learned. We were much more deliberate about language. We were much more deliberate about um, exposing our kids to relationships that were wholesome and, and I'll tell you, the, the generation that my children represent are so much freer of the baggage that I grew up with. And I don't know that I delivered all that. Certainly they had a mother that delivered a lot of that. And I think our society cleaned itself up somewhat in that period. But my kids do not fall into the same potholes that I fell into in terms of the kind of thing we're talking about. Do you think it's because of their choice of associations? I don't know. More than anything? I don't know, Greg. I, I, I don't know for or sure. Do you think, I mean, one, one question or one, one insight could be that no matter what, in, in the most liberal of associations, these kinds of pathologies in terms of race show up. Absolutely. You know, so th they could be eating, you know, all the right stuff and drinking the right juices and they can be saving the whales and they can be, you know, concerned about the polar bear and fresh water, but they still can be racist. But what I, what I have observed in my children is an intentionality, the word that you use a lot, uh -huh. that I, was not present in my early uh, life. And, and I'm not sure where it came from. I was just pleased when I saw it. Okay. And, and that gives me some cause for optimism. I, I have a tendency to agree with you on that. Uh, they are at least beginning to attempt to recapture the no, the concept of common humanity. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm noticing that that they're not as easy to be to to write off. You know, issues like immigration, issues like um, George George Floyd. Those they're not. Then uh, it's still not a uh, a significant kind of change, but it is a change. It is it, a change. It's a change. Growing up in the 1950s, we kind of accepted because nobody was tossing it in our face. We kind of accepted that this is the way life was. Those folks lived over here. They tended to be poor. We lived over here. We tended to be less poor. I, I, there wasn't a lot of push to undo that. But but don't you don't you? I mean, from your perspective, you know, when we we hear this term disparities, when we're talking about disparities in terms of um, capacity building, uh, um, people being more capable of doing what they need to do in order to 
to remain healthy, to remain safe, to you know, to live in good housing, all the all the you know usual stuff. Do you think that has changed much? I mean, you know, are the are or are there still individuals who are in the 21st century thinking in the 1950s and 60s? Do you see people? Well, like I that? think there are still people. And even even amongst those people who are pretty much aware, that we can all fall into complacency. Sure. Because, yeah, I got mine, and I don't. You know, there are there are times when we focus on this, and there are times when we kick back and say, "Well, I'm tired. I'm not going to think about it anymore." Right. Right. And 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 uh, I think when people talk about privilege, I don't I don't think they're necessarily talking about material privilege all the time. I think sometimes when people talk about privilege is the ability to say, well, I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. You know. I don't have to deal with that, I don't do have I? To deal with that. On, on the other hand, the guy on the other side of the tracks has to deal with it. Right. And so the perception of the other guy and the other guy's perception drives the, the, the reality that we see. When we see the division, I'm not sure what all that means. But what I, that means is, is if if I'm black and I'm dealing with the the the, the neomanek every day, yeah, and and you know, in a metaphorical way, in terms of things going on, um, I'm going to determine that reality based on the pressure that I feel. You have to. You have to. You have to. I don't have to. And if you don't have to, if you do, if you can take a break, then it's human nature to take a break. Sure. Right. Sure. And that drives our misperceptions about one another in terms of who we are in this society, in this culture. Right now we are fortunate to have, to, for those people who sense the unfairness, and I use that word a lot because I think it's real basic, mm-hmm. we, we, we can sidestep that unfairness and just watch a movie or read a book or do something else. But right now we are, uh, if, if we're if our ears to the ground, we are bombarded with reminders, sure. and it's real helpful. The literature that has been written in the last few years, certainly the the, the body cams and the fact that we've got a twenty four hour media uh, technology itself. Technology itself has has allowed us to see these things. You know, the civil rights movement was going nowhere until NBC showed up. Sure. And, and Walter Cronkite showed up and showed us those pictures into every middle-class home in America. And all of a sudden, that's not right. Right. That helped. And I think this, I think this technology today helps. I agree. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I think it can be manipulated. I don't think you there's know, any question. You know, and I think you have to be careful with what's it algorithms and things of that nature yeah. you know and how people perceive one another and how people are, are made to perceive one another but I think despite all of that it, there's much more access to information however do you think it's going to be enough what do you see um, 20 years from now do we be, be prophetic in these last five minutes <coughs> well the, the 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 children by the way that's a great book have you ever read the children by it Halberstam? No. He documents the uh, first years after the sit-ins 
and he refers to the children as that generation of college students that did the Freedom Rides and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the children give me hope for cause. Uh, but I see this problem as being tenacious. And it, it's a, there's an attitude problem, there's an economic problem, there's a perceptual problem. We've got, we've got a ways to go to fix it. Hmm. And, and I don't know that our political system is going to be of much help uh, because it's pretty, pretty much hogtied right now. So I'm not overly optimistic, but I'm more optimistic than I would have been had I had this awareness in, in 1960. When you, when you look out into the vista of doing the work that you do day by day and you encounter people and you deal with people, how hopeful are you that people see the authentic nature of your uh, humanity and your accepting of their common humanity? Do you think people get it from you, or do they think? Do you think they say, "Oh, that's that white guy comes here"? That, that, that you know. I don't know. I'm I'm fortunate to work with volunteers, and those. I'm, volu- I'm, I'm, I'm t- not talking about more than the volunteers. I'm talking oh. about the people that you encounter. And talk oh, they, they probably think that guy's not all there. He's nuts. Okay. Yeah. I. There, there's all kinds of reactions. Um, what would you want want done that is not being done? Uh, to help people become conscious of common humanity? I think we all need to talk about it more. Spend a lot more time on the radio, huh? Uh, the radio station, uh, part of the mission of the radio station is to have this kind of conversation be present. Uh, and, and, you know, a guy or a random guy out there driving down Lincoln Way may just go through the dial and land on this and say, what the heck is going on there? And maybe he'll listen for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's hopefulness. Uh, it, how does it feel? Do a shout out for uh, placing yourself at a, uh, a position of vulnerability. I mean, how did that, I mean, we, we spent about an hour, you know, kind of peeling the onion about Paul and, you know, why yeah. Paul thinks the way. Do you think this is something that can other individuals can do in a way that would be helpful? Yeah, I, I, I would have, this conversation would have been very interesting if we'd had someone who had not been on the same path that I'd been on. Yeah. And could expose and could, could react to your questions very differently than I did. And that conversation, you know, Greg, we could talk a lot more about this. Sure. I'm looking at the clock and it says our hour is gone. Well, just last words. Um, when you share your growth with other people, they are exposed to it and there's a chance that they will get on the train. Thank you, Paul, for sharing with us today. Until we meet you all again the next week, Remember Morning Black, building leaders in cultural knowledge. Have a great day.